Welcome to the One Life Podcast. Being a business owner is potentially the best path to build personal wealth. However, embarking on an opportunity, whether full-time or as a side hustle, is incredibly tough. I believe that understanding finances is integral to the success of your business. The purpose of this podcast is to empower you to understand, manage and grow your business finances and therefore your personal wealth. I invite you to join me every Friday as I share insights and actionable strategies to make your business serve you rather than you serve your business. I'm your host, Andrew Wilson. Well, welcome to the One Life Business Podcast. I hope you're well and you're looking after yourselves. My name is Andrew Wilson and I'm a chartered accountant by trade. This podcast is about financial empowerment, your financial empowerment, and specifically that empowerment that is through understanding, controlling and growing your business finances. And in turn, you're able to draw more from your business. And ideally, that will propel you on that journey to your own personal financial independence. This podcast is an association with the Always Free podcast and show, both of which are presented by my friend Jason Greystone. If you haven't caught either of those, I strongly suggest doing so. My guest this week, and I'm really happy to to welcome her to the podcast, her name is Julie Barber. And Julie is an entrepreneur, a mentor, a speaker, and she's an author of the number one best-selling book, Investor Ready, which I read last year for the first time, and I'm about a quarter of the way through for the second time, and it's a fantastic book. And it's a guide for startups in getting investors to say yes. And she's the CEO of Spark Consultancy, or consulting. How are you doing, Julie? I'm good, thank you. Great to be here. A a full-on introduction. Yes, thank you. There's a lot to say about you. Um, Can you give us a bit of background to Spark and a a bit of background to yourself, if that's okay? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, I come from 20 years in financial services doing the full run between consulting regulators and banks uh, working well, focused on um, strategic planning, tech design, build and deployment across 140 countries, organisational structure and change and innovation work as well. And through a lot of the innovation work, I I started to come into contact with startups um, who were coming to pitch for corporate investment or corporate sales and started to get really frustrated at how they were poorly prepared for those conversations. They didn't really understand what it would take to impress those investors. They didn't understand what those investors would worry about. And having pitched for a lot of investment myself to corporate boards and got kind of over 20 million out of them over the years, um, I know what it takes to give people enough confidence to get them to give you money. So, so when I set up Spark, originally we started just working with, with corporate clients on, um, you know, transformation and innovation type things. But then through, again, some more of the innovation work, still frustrated with the startups. So we, we then started, uh, you know, a service line focused on startups and scale ups to help them prepare for, for raising that investment um, and using my knowledge from the corporate world to, to transfer over to, to startup land. So it's all about knowing your market and knowing who you're presenting to and you're yeah. educating people about that. Absolutely. So so the, the thing we always try to impress on startups is investors are your other customer. So, you know, founders are often thinking about their, their market customer and they must know their market customer inside out to make sure their product works and 
everything else and they forget that their investors are their other customer and they have to know them just as well to be able to pitch to them effectively. And the reason for startups is because you've seen so many problems with the manner in which they present, how they're actually portraying themselves to investors. What's the sort of process that Spark and yourself will run them through? Sure. So there are two issues really when, or two gates that startups can fall at when they're trying to get investment. And the initial gate is, can you present in a way that you know gets them interested and makes uh, makes the investor kind of bypass their worries and reach a point of excitement where they want to be involved? First gate. And then the second gate is once the investor lifts the hood and looks inside the business, does it actually all stack up? Or are there great gaping holes which make them immediately turn and walk away and say, not for us? So, you know, our process and how we work with our clients is all about interrogating the business from the inside out, finding all the gaps, making sure those are either fixed before you go for investment or that you have at least written into your plan um, how you will fix those gaps. Because, you know, investors acknowledge that you might not have the money to fix all the gaps straight away and that's okay as long as you know that you've got a gap and how you're going to close it that's all right so so if you do the the business inspection first the 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 analysis once you've done that then you can then work on what the business plan looks like what the pitch deck looks like making sure your data room is actually populated correctly so that you're ready to move smoothly through um through a fundraising process. So these are going to be terms that quite a lot of people probably haven't even heard of before. I mean, I'm sure everyone's heard of a business plan, but actually putting one together, it's quite rare. Even in sizable businesses that are turning over, you know, multiple millions, tens of millions at times, they very rarely have a business plan. And the reason for that is because it's all in the founders or the directors or the board's sort of head, which isn't very useful. You obviously specialize in startups. What's the strength with having a a business plan set and in place? Uh, Because it's not just for investors, is it? No, you know, it helps you to communicate to the whole of the company, uh, the direction that you're going in. Um, It helps you to be able to be in a position where you're ready to take on partnerships, um, where you're maybe ready to to make acquisitions or potential mergers with other, um, you know, comparable businesses. So business plan is super important. If you don't know where you're going and how you're going to get there, then you're, you're running at pretty high risk as a business. You don't know if you're spending your money in the right way at the right time, that there are all sorts of issues that, that arise. So can you explain to us what a pitch deck is? Sure. So a pitch deck is usually a set of PowerPoint slides, generally around 10 to 15 slides long. Ideally, we get sent a lot that are far longer and we have to chop them up and say you can't possibly send an investor 44 slides. They will never read it. Um, but generally around 10 to 15 slides And the idea of that pitch deck is to pitch your business to the investor um, to get them interested. It's a teaser. It's not every bit of detail about your business. You wouldn't put highly confidential information in there. Um, You wouldn't put the level of detail in there that would go in your business plan. It's all very high level. So it's, you know, at a high level, what's the problem? At a high level, what's the solution? What's the market opportunity? Um, what are the high level financial targets? Uh, all of those things would go into that 
deck to show to give the investors a flavor of what you're about and what you could achieve in the future are there different types of pitch decks so if you're presenting to people face to face then surely that would be a different pitch deck to if you're just perhaps sending it in the post and or I say the post no one does that anymore <laughs> emails <laughs> um, sending it on email or you're let's say you're presenting to a group on a uh, on uh, zoom and then they say okay well look I'd like to see your pitch deck fine okay look I can send that over yeah definitely I mean the yeah totally the the deck that you'd send by email would inevitably be have a bit more detail on it, a few more words on it, because it has to talk for you when you're not there. Whereas the one that you present with, you might strip out a lot of the words and rely much more on graphs. And you don't, in a pitch deck anyway, tend to put more than kind of 50 to 70 words on a slide anyway, because you want to keep it as tight as you can. Um, but you might strip that out even more if you're doing a live presentation because you want people to look at you and not be trying to read the slide while you're presenting it. Um, one thing we do suggest, though, about ordering is you always have a team slide in your pitch deck uh, about the team and who you know what their roles are and what their experience might be. If you're presenting in person, it's great to put that slide first because then it allows you to introduce the team that's in the room that's presenting or that's on the Zoom, this is who we are, and then go into um, uh, the rest of, of the content. Whereas if you're sending it by email, you need someone to get hooked by the problem and the solution as quickly as you can to make them keep reading. So you put the team at the back in that scenario. So there are some differences. So the listeners to this podcast will be those people that, as I say, that want to understand, control and grow their business finances. And they might be sitting here going, OK, why is he speaking to Julie? But actually, I think this is intrinsically linked because not only do they need to understand what assets are in their business, but they also need to grow. And in order to grow, that could be organically or that could be through, let's say you, you mentioned um, mergers and acquisitions. You know, it could be mm. through buying another business. So an organic versus a commercial sort of growth. Now, in order to do both of those things, they need to have money. You know, even organic growth happens over time, but you still need money. So if you're working with businesses that don't have money, so let's say they're, and I'm going to pull out pre-seed, seed or series A, can can you go through the three, that those three in particular? Because I think they're the ones that you spend the most time with. Yeah. And, and also just, you know, just kind of before I get into those, those definitions, um, raising investment doesn't necessarily mean raising equity investment so selling part of your business to to get investment it, it can also mean going to the bank to get a business loan yeah. and you'd still need to take them you know a pitch deck and a business plan and and ha go through a certain level of due diligence so don't assume that raising investment means uh, that there is equity involved in in the equation yeah, and in my experience, um, if you're going for something like grant funding, they'll also need the same yeah, information. Yeah, exactly. Grants, yeah, also want a pitch deck, also want a business plan. So it's it's useful across multiple ways of, of raising money. If you are looking at equity, then, um, then yeah, these terms of pre-seed, seed and series A crop up. Yeah. Um, so pre-seed is used to describe a company that is right at the start of its life. Um, it may just be an idea at this stage. It's just kicking off. There's, there's no product. There's no 
revenue, there's no users um, of anything, uh, and it's really in its infancy in the kind of exploratory design build um, kind of phase. Uh, and investors do invest at that stage, uh, you know, if they think the idea is good enough to help it get off the ground. Uh, and then when you get to seed stage, then the idea is that the, the seed has been planted. That's why it's called that. And that there's starting to be some kind of traction for the business. So they've got at least a minimum viable product, a basic product that's out there. Um, they've got some users whether those be freemium users who are who are using it for free at the moment, or whether those be paying users, um, that you know that doesn't necessarily matter. Uh, it's more about showing that the market is using your product or service, and that they want to continue using your product or service as well. Um, uh, and then once you get to Series A, um, you know the. The idea really is that pre-series A, you're kind of bumping along the bottom, testing things out, working out exactly what the market wants, tweaking the product, um, you know, tweaking your go-to-market strategy, all of those things. And then series A is the inflection point where you figured out all the ways that, that you need to tweak things. And now it's pedal to the metal to really skyrocket the growth of the company. So when you're raising investment at Series A, what you're saying to investors is we've done all the hard graft here of figuring out all those things um, about product market fit and, and go-to-market strategy. And now we need to pile some money in to really achieve the revenue and the profit that we're capable of. So, so they're different steps in the in the growth and the and the maturity of the company. You mentioned maturity in a previous podcast. I've sort of spoken about the sort of steps that a business has to take. So it goes from infancy to adolescence and on to maturity. And I, I would sort of squarely put pre-seed and seed in the infancy stage. Mm. And I'd say Series A is probably at adolescence. So perhaps a million pounds, you know, turnover, perhaps not even profitable at that stage. Yeah. Then what you really want with that added investment, with that ramping up, is to move it to to ideally to that maturity stage yeah yeah absolutely so you know typically like you say we often see um we often see series a companies with um with no profit yet we sometimes see series a companies with even no revenue yet depending on um what the nature of the company is so for instance if you look into the um the medical sector companies that are in clinical trials that are developing new drugs will be raising at series a with no hope of revenue for another four or five or six years um, because of the nature of of the product or the service that they're creating um, whereas a SaaS company, which is build your software, get out to the market, test it and get it going, would be expected to have around at least a million in annual recurring revenue by the time it went for Series A. So there are different expectations depending upon which sector you're in. Do you find that founders are coming to you and saying, I've never done this before. I have no clue whatsoever to, to on, on how to approach this. Yes. Yeah. All the time. So, um, you know, we, we, we've got a new client um, starting next week uh, who, who will be going out to raise um, around 2 million pounds. We haven't quite worked out the, the exact 
amount that they'll be going for, but they've never raised any investment before. They've grown a successful business. They're very experienced in sales and marketing and, you know, know their customers inside out. But in this area, they just don't have the knowledge. So they've sought out some professional support. And if we were talking about sort of intellectual property and assets of the business, I would say that the business plan, the pitch deck and and, and those assets are, are assets of the business that you are basically building value. And although it yeah. takes time and effort, it is part and parcel of a successful business to have those things in place, correct? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, particularly if you're taking um, equity investment, you have to remember that ultimately those investors want a return on their investment. They want their money back with, with cash on top, which means that you likely have to sell the business or do something like an IPO um, onto, onto the market, which means that you need to be very focused on building balance sheet value to create higher valuation for the company. So whether that is registered intellectual property like trademarks like um patents uh that kind of thing um you know that's why lots of medical companies get huge valuations because they've got patent technology over things that they've created um in the course of of their their development and their trials so so there's those kinds of things which which create support that kind of balance sheet valuation and then there are other assets, different kinds of assets, which can support revenue growth. For instance, you know, when you're designing the most efficient process for your business in how to do things and and the way that you create um, supporting assets for those processes, whether it's the documenting of the process or the or the steps of the process and what, um, you know, what things need to be created at each step those in and of themselves can help drive your revenue or keep your costs down. So they're important on the P&L side. Um, so they won't necessarily drive the balance sheet valuation, but they help on the, on the growth side. So what's the typical type of business that you work with? We work with tech or tech related companies generally. Um, we do the odd completely left of field, you know, drink or uh, some kind of food product, but generally it's tech or tech related UK um, headquartered, looking at a market opportunity of 100 million plus, um, eventually, not in the first year, but eventually. And we tend to work with founders who have either had corporate careers where they have shown the ability to execute um, and are now transitioning to a startup role, um, or people who've previously run other businesses and are now in a new startup that they want to raise investment for. Because there's an immediate credibility from those founders that they have the capability to execute. And that's very important when you're trying to convince investors to put money in to show that they can actually turn something from an idea into a reality. And that leads on. So what's the typical type of business that investors are prepared to invest in? I mean, I guess the buzzword there is tech. It, it is tech, but really it's anything that will make them money. So, oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> so, so, you know, if, if there's if there's a very low tech opportunity, but someone's found a way to exploit it in a way that's new and novel and, um, you know, has the capacity to achieve big returns then 
great. You know, investors will be interested because investors want as big a return as they possibly can for their money. They tend to flock more towards tech because scaling a tech business can be a lot easier and lower costs than scaling, you know, a bricks and mortar type business or a, you know, a a, a product type business as well. Um, So so there's a reason they, they kind of gravitate towards tech. Bottom line, they're there to make money. They really want to be successful in doing what they're doing as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there are a number of investors out there who are, who do have kind of philanthropic aims as well. You know, either they've been a startup founder themselves and they know what it felt like trying to get that first money. Perhaps they've had a good exit themselves and they now want to plough a bit of money back into the ecosystem. But they do plough that back in still with the expectation that at least some of their investments will come off and they will get a good return from some of them. They also expect that some of them will fail because not every company succeeds so you know it high startup and a scale-up investment is very high risk um uh, so they have to recognize it as that but but you know they do have and some family offices as well that um are supporting ultra high net worth families and looking after their investments for them will often also have um philanthropic aims in their investment strategies so they may have um i know one family office who the uh the the father of the family has um quite a crop of daughters and therefore invests solely in female founders uh because he wants to support um women Is that what in business called? lots <laughs> of daughters are called a crop are they yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so you know the so so there are you know some some family offices that also have a very um particular aim to to help support people but again they're still looking for some degree of of return on their investment it's not a donation i've been reading a lot about esg so environmental social and governance and and actually that people are becoming and certainly investors are becoming much more um open to being well philanthropic as you say are you seeing that is becoming more prevalent definitely i mean definitely investors are really wanting to to a invest in things which at the least are not harmful and at their best hopefully have um, have a positive impact there's a lot of you know social good investing that goes on or you know environmental good investing that that goes on as well Um, there's lots of interest in climate tech companies for instance at the moment to support them in looking at ways that, that we can address climate change governance is not really as new a thing as the environmental and social elements that's kind of been carried over from just good business practice that's always been expected um, but perhaps is making itself felt more at the lower level of the newer companies whereas you know governance tended to be something that people used to think about for big companies and corporates and they had to have their corporate governance but actually you know now people are really starting to understand that governance applies from the minute you start a company not from the minute you hit 100 million in revenue the listeners to this podcast as i say i'm expecting most of them to be in that kind of infancy and adolescence stage i'm I'm not expecting that many to be up at, at the sort of maturity stage of their business 
if they're listening to this and thinking, you know what, actually, I don't know what I need to do to get to the next stage. And potentially, I think investment could be the way forward. Is it worthwhile having firstly thinking about it and then having a conversation with someone like yourself? Before you go to have a conversation with anybody, you need to be very clear on what the ambition is for the business, where you want to get to, and what it would take to get you there. Now, you might not know all the details and you might need some help with framing out how you might achieve that growth. But if you've got a very clear, you know, we're currently turning over 2 million, we really would like to get to 10 or 20. Um, We want to be able to expand into these countries. We've got a couple of products we'd like to, you know, bring to the market in addition to what we've got now then that starts to give you something that you can have then a valuable conversation with a professional to then talk about, well, is investment the right vehicle to help you achieve that? Um, Because, you know, if you don't know how much, what you want to do, you don't know how much it's going to cost you to do it. And therefore you don't know if you need investment. So if you work out what your strategy is to get to your, you know, ultimate goal, And then you cost it all out and go, well, actually, we could fund that ourselves from our own retained profits. Then you don't need investment. Typically, companies go to raise investment either because they are very early stage and they don't have any cash at all. So there's nothing to kind of fund the forward movement of business or they've got cash, but they need to attack the market so quickly to take significant market share that they could not manage that amount of self-funding from the business. So they have to take on other investment. Now, if your business is something that can comfortably just kind of grow at 10 or 20% in a self-funded way per year over the next five years, there's no real reason to take on investment because you can do it by yourselves. And it means you're not giving up equity and you won't be forced into an exit. You can run that company till you retire if you want. But, you know, if you're an Uber, who's set out to take over the world when it comes to taxis, you can't hang around because you need to take market share before someone else does. So I think that goes full circle, doesn't it? Because I think that gets us back to the business plan. Mm. Yeah. If you were to to give the the listeners like a, a, a very basic, look, this is the structure of a business plan that you need to think about. Can I ask you what that would be? So your business plan is really, uh, you know, a more detailed extension of your pitch deck. So you'll still have, I mean, you start, you always start with an exec summary, um, which, which just basically summarizes everything that's in the plan, you know, hopefully in a page or two, not anything longer than that, because it's a summary. Um, and then after that, you're going to go into, you know, what the problem is that you're solving, what the solution is, what the market opportunity is in more detail than you did in the pitch deck. Um, you'll talk about, you know, your product roadmap, your roadmap for the business as a whole. So those two things are different. So, you know, we're going to add X, Y, Z functionality to the product is not the same as your business roadmap, which will be we're going to expand into this country or that country, or we're going to add this revenue stream. Those are different things. You know, you have to have your financials in there, your financial forecasts, usually a five year um, forecast and your current year management accounts at summary level again. Um, If you've got them. If you've got them, quite, um, yeah, quite. (laughs) And then you also need to be able to talk about if you're going to raise investment, how much money you need, what you'd spend it on and what outcomes that would get you. 
I think that's a really good overview. Um, with the exec summary, would that include things like your vision? Yeah, so at a very high level, I mean, typically the ideal structure for an exec summary is one sentence for each section of the business plan. So a set, you know, a sentence on the vision, a sentence on the problem, a sentence on the solution, a sentence on the financials, etc., basically builds up your exec summary. I'm going to talk about COVID businesses that were trying to source funding, you know, mm-hmm. state funding. Yeah. They needed to have a business plan. Yes. And how many businesses did not have a business plan? Uh-huh. I wonder. I don't, I don't I know. know the the biggest were. exercise in business plan writing in history all yes. at once. All at once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I think historically business plans have been looked on as um, either something that other people do yeah. or something that you do once a year and then you put it in the cupboard and you get it out a year later to see if you hit in any of the targets that you wrote down but the reality in these times is that you need a business plan as a living document that you create and then you track against and that's backed up by your financial model that should sit behind it that you then track your actuals you track you know are we on budget or off budget are we hitting the milestones that we set ourselves if we're not why not um all of those things become vital because the way the speed with which markets move now businesses have less time to course correct if they're going off track so the more that you can understand exactly what the straight line path is that you want to achieve and then be able to monitor how close or far from it you are is really important yeah, Julia, couldn't agree more. Although what I would say is quite a few tech businesses quite often pivot away from their original kind of, this is what we were They, we're they do, but but that's because they started with a plan. They monitored Correct. against it and went, it's not working. Yeah. Why isn't it working? Because of this, ah, we need to pivot. So again, if they weren't keeping a tight eye on how things were working, they could have gone on much longer and then potentially actually collapsed as a business because they've run out of money without realizing what was going wrong whereas the ones who are really going hang on this isn't quite working out how we expected we can see that it's not tracking according to our plan can pivot and make the changes that they need to to turn into a successful business and talking about it it makes complete sense doesn't it again in my experience very few people and very few businesses have these business plans and it makes complete sense to do so So if the listeners were going to take away two things, the first one would be, let's start thinking about a business plan, do exactly what what, uh, Julie said with her eight or nine steps there. And the second thing is, if you're thinking about investment and you're thinking about whether it's external or it is from lending, Julie and Spark Consulting can help. I'll put a link to Spark in the the podcast notes. Um, But Julie, if you want to leave us with one, Um, one final... One final nugget of information. I think the most important thing is around founder knowledge and confidence. So there's often an expectation in founders themselves that they should be able to do everything in the business and they should know everything. And the reality is that you don't have to do everything. You don't have to know everything. You have to know how to get the right support. And it's not a failing to say, I don't know how to do that. I'm going to go and get some help on that particular area, whether it be fundraising or marketing or sales or, you know, whichever. Um, but, 
but not putting that pressure on yourself as a founder to try and do something that actually isn't your strength. It's a it's actually a waste of your time and you could be better focused on generating revenue for the business, for instance, while someone else works on the paperwork behind the scenes for you. If that's what you want to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Wearing so many hats. I mean, all founders do, don't they? All business yeah. startups. We've all done it. You've done it, I'm sure. And I've certainly done it. You know, it's just, it is part and parcel of it. But to get away from that is the, the key. Julie, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I was looking forward to this and, uh, and you've given us and the listeners loads of value. So I really appreciate it. No problem. All right. Catch up soon. Take care.